fascinating to me how charismania is its own form of Pope Jim, which is we're, our, we're, we're the sole arbiters of truth. If you don't question us, you know, anyway, you're live. So I'll wait to say it on the air. I think, yeah, we'll go I ahead. think that got on the air. All right. Yeah. Well, I'll say it again. <laughs> I, I actually just posted a meme. Um, hi, everybody. Dank podcast and all that stuff. Yeah, all that. Um, I don't have my blankie because it's June, but I'm still blanky Dave. <laughs> um, I'll turn my air conditioner on and I can have it. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. This is the disorienting. I just posted a meme, um, which is kind of the opening salvo because we were talking in the in the chat a little bit about it tonight. Um, and maybe this isn't hundred percent the topic, but it's it's really interesting. Something that I see in a lot of different forms in a world. Um, I can't I can't do a screen share, but maybe one of you can. It's the uh, one that I have called opening salvo. You, uh, you can share that and I'll talk about it. But um, we have this denigration of the intellect, denigration of using our brains and instead, um, you know, we'll just trust your heart. I remember seeing a Facebook post about this, some spiritual teaching, and it says, you know, um, you know, don't try to think this through just trust how you feel because that's how God's talking to you. And that's the, the goal of that is, and we, we talk about Pope Jim, you know, being the, the um, his own sole arbiter of truth. And you can't argue with him because his interpretation is, is above. And he says, well, you haven't given me scriptural um, reasons for why I'm wrong, but it doesn't matter what scriptural reasons you'll give. He'll interpret the Bible to mean he's actually right after all. So there's no point. Um, in the same way, you have people that are setting something even more abstract up, which is their um, their own view of the of their um, like their their emotional view, or, or however you want to say that. They're setting up their emotions. So yeah, this um, that that's that's the meme there. You can check it out, but that we hear a lot listen to your heart don't you know don't try to reason with this don't try to think this through uh, because the bible warns you about the dangers of reasoning well the bible also warns about um how you can't trust your heart the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked it says um so leaning on yourself and making yourself the sole arbiter of truth or making one or two people the sole arbiters of truth is a dangerous proposition and you see that in all kind of different forms where people want to they want to craft reality around what they want it to be. And it's, it's interesting. You see that phenomenon, different people practicing it different ways, but, um, but it's, it's like the, it feels like that same thread runs through it. So what's the, what's the resolution? So the Bible tells us not to trust our heart, like our emotions. The Bible tells us not to trust our, our, our intellect. Does the Bible tell us not to trust our intellect? Is that a message anywhere in the scripture? Not to thine own understanding. So that's an that's an understanding not informed by the scriptures. Yeah. But even but even so, you're going to have somebody who's going to say, "But my understanding is, you know, I I'm quoting the Bible when it means this." You know, we just had a guy in a group not long ago saying, "Well, I'm just quoting the Bible. I'm literally just quoting the Bible right. verbatim." <laughs> um, well, that, that that's problematic too that's to me that's where the need for other people is that's why god that's why god gave us the community of believers i think that's a big a big um 
he doesn't say throw a, throw understanding under the bus and just act irrationally. He says lean not on your own understanding because there's other people who can help you to understand what things are supposed to be. And obviously the the Bible is at, at some level objective. I know we can make it mean whatever we want it to mean. But um, if you have the objective measuring stick of the Bible, and then you also have the community of faith, not only the current community of faith, but the historic community of faith, um, that's, there's a lot of grounds then for, for more stability because you, you're not, it's not just about you and your own private interpretation. I know that's a fun one too, a fun verse to use too. Well, I mean, Paul did say some things that lend themselves to at least the charismatic side of that. Like he didn't receive his gospel from any man, but by revelation, um, he, he talks about spiritual wisdom versus earthly wisdom. So I, he says things that can be interpreted that way. I'd be interested in hearing you guys' thoughts about what he actually meant by a lot of that. But but that was Paul. Like that was God giving Paul a direct download and saying, you're the apostle to the Gentiles. This is the gospel that, that I'm teaching you. He goes into Arabia for three years and um, apparently receives a lot of direct teaching from Jesus there. Um, it's interesting. The disciples had three years with Jesus in the flesh. Paul has apparently three years with Jesus in the spirit and um, receives, receives a lot of information. And so, to me, to use that as to say I'm getting direct downloads from God, um, I I think that I think that's a stretch. Um, not well, that I have. If I go problem. spend three years in Arabia, will you listen to my downloads? Probably, uh, probably be a little bit more open to them. At least you know. At least you're putting your money where your mouth is. <laughs> <laughs> well, just just uh, as a pro tip. If, people, if you come into a community that doesn't know you, you can say anything you want about how long you spent in the desert getting downloads beforehand. Um, and you can kind of get instant authority that way. I, I think there's a better resolution and it's the resolution of the Brians that, that one of the things that, that impresses me and confirms to me Paul's um, proper status uh, as a spiritual authority is is his, his submission of his own teaching and ideas to the scriptures. Like what we don't get from him, and this was actually my crisis of conscience that led me out of the charity movement, is that I had, I had bought the whole pyramidal um, umbrella of authority teaching that, that was so common in charity circles and in, in um, Bill Gothard circles that you just do what the next level above you says and that's your that's your shroud of protection that's how you stay in God's will mm -hmm. but when my conscience ran afoul of my authority I had to reassess if this was true it, it caused me to reassess a lot of other things mm -hmm. too like why I was what what part of my flesh was pleased by that teaching but that's a whole nother story. But when I went and did an assessment again of, of, of what, what do scriptural authorities, how do they deal with their authority? I started with Jesus and he says these things about, if you don't believe me for my word's sake, believe me for the works. Like the mm -hmm. fact that people present and approach Jesus with incredulity does not write them off. It's not, you're not listening to me go away. 
he has some way to work through, yeah. okay, well, if this doesn't work for you, what about this? Here's how right. you can, here's how you can check what I'm saying, if it works or not, if it's true or not. And we find that same pattern with, with Paul. He, mm -hmm. he threatens himself with anathema. If I or an angel from heaven comes with a different gospel than you received, let him be anathema. It, it, he, mm -hmm. he blesses the Bereans for challenging his teaching mm -hmm. to see whether these things be in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. There's not a, he's not writing himself blank checks with his authority. And I think that's an important, right. that's a necessary uh, approach for any spiritual authority to begin speaking. I, I think it's interesting. That's that key. Um, I think super interesting too is that he locks himself down to what he's said in the past and gone on record. Because mm -hmm. you have a lot of spiritual authorities that they teach something, and then well, you're, we're seeing that happen with COGR right now, where yeah. they're getting up and saying, "Boy, if we just said some of the stuff we're saying now three years ago, we'd empty this place out." Right. You're, you're not teaching the same thing you taught three years ago. And, th and that's, that's an issue is that, is that, that drift, um, a, a true spiritual authority is holding themselves to their own, to their own past teaching and so forth. And that's for everything else. And I know this is going to end up on the website for everything else we want to say about the Catholics. That's actually one thing they have right is that even the Pope doesn't have the right to undo what they did in the past. Mm. I think that's a, it, yeah, it's, it's huge. It's worth, it's worth following that rabbit a little bit because I think that one of the rarest attributes of people is the ability to come back and say I was wrong. Like I've, I've been watching it play out. Like I, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting with bated breath for some of the COVID conspiracy people to come back on their social media and say, I was totally wrong. I thought this was a hoax. I thought it was a lark. I thought nobody was gonna die and I was wrong. And that's the, that is so rare. I, and I, I mean, I can, I can uh, diagnose all the reasons why it's rare, but, but if I see somebody who's willing to say I was wrong, that that's that's an interesting mark to me yeah yeah with, with covid this is a rabbit show but i i remember my accountant sitting me down i think end of february when i just got back from india and telling me that in a couple months the world's going to be a completely different place and this is coming and it's going to be wild and i remember laughing at him and i was like come on man you know did you say this about ebola you know i was like <laughs> Were you a not, were you a, a Y2Ker? Right. <laughs> I, I gave him all that, you know, and, and right. kind of told my friends about him jokingly and I was wrong, right? So right. I think that we all should be willing to admit when we're wrong about something. Um, but coming back to the, you know, scriptures versus maybe mystical revolution, revelation bit, I, I think that both of them are, maybe not equal, but very important methods of um, getting to the truth. So there, there are moments when I'm praying or when I'm in the scriptures, when I, I don't know that God doesn't really give me like exact words. He doesn't really speak to me in that way, but I get certain impressions um, or certain, yeah, impressions is probably the best way to, to talk about it because you can't really talk about mystical things with, without 
you can't do justice really to them through words necessarily. Now I'm sounding really arrogant. You know, my time with God, I just can't do justice. I just can't put it in words, brother. Um, but look, I, I seriously get impressions that, that really do shape the way I live my life and change things. And, and are, I believe I wouldn't have known that if it wasn't for those impressions. Um, and, and I think that if one of those impressions goes against scripture, then scripture is the ultimate authority. But I think there's a danger in, in intellect with, with, with kind of the left right brain divide in Christianity that, that a lot of the, those who are more focused on experience form their own denomination, the charismatics, and those who are more focused on intellect, you know, will, will either become reformed or I think kingdom Christians would fall more in that camp. And I, I think that is dangerous. Like, I think they're both very valid ways of accessing truth and different people are going to be oriented in different ways. Um, but I think we really can have the best of both worlds. Like we can be the kind of person who, who studies and thinks deeply about complicated topics. And we can also be the type of person who is, loses himself in ecstatic worship also. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. Well, I think that there that we don't have very good frameworks for different kinds of truths. Uh, I think there are personal truth and 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 institutional or corporate truths or universal truths. There's different truth means different things at different levels and tiers. And what what truth can't mean is is untrue. That sounds dumb to say it that way, but it's a basic philosophical yeah. premise that if it's true, it has to be true in some real way. But we also know that things can be true to a person and not true to everyone. I mean, Romans 14 is an elucidation of that exact point, that for one person, eating could be damnation, and another person, eating could mean nothing. Like, both of those are true. So there should be room within a biblical framework for people to have a variable experience, for things to be meaningful in an individualized or in a small group kind of way that maybe don't carry over to the entire human corpus or in, to the entire church. And allowing for those kinds of expressions is valuable and meaningful. I, I, um, my own experience is that I'm a, I'm a second definite work guy. Uh, and I think that that second definite work can be um, congruent with with the first definite work of baptism, but I do believe that there's two distinct things, that the baptism in water and the baptism of the Holy Ghost are two distinct, discrete experiences, even if they happen simultaneously. And, and so when I was young, I had a, a, an experience with God in the Holy Ghost, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and, and it opened up, it, 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 it caused me to be able to hear the spirit of God in ways that I hadn't before and experience him. And it was all very revelatory and very, you know, uh, ecstatic and exciting and, and edifying. And I followed that voice a lot <clears throat> until, until one point in time when I was wrong. And I, I, I claimed to be hearing God and I, miss, I, I did something wrong. I, I misheard. And I said the wrong thing and it was painful to someone and it wrecked me. Like it really, really wrecked me. And right after that time, I, I, I stepped away from my church for completely different reasons, but it was probably the most difficult spiritual in, events that I had ever gone through. And um, 
and on the other side of those experiences, I was much more reticent. I was much less willing to just jump out on the whim that I had heard from God. And I think I, I'm looking for in this point in my life, I'm looking for a balance back towards a more being more sensitive to ecstatic revelation, but also afraid of that. And I think that those two things tempered together are a proper balance. Like there's somewhere in between where you're supposed to be afraid of revelation and open to revelation, but not too open. Like, I think that's the place where God wants us to get. And the problem is when people don't have either one of those, they don't have the openness to revelation and they don't have the fear that revelation, your ideas about revelation can lead you to hurt people or to say wrong things. So I'm grateful for those experiences and I've never fully recovered from them. I'm much more cerebral than I was as a young Christian. And I, I don't know how to process all that. If you talk to me in another 20 years, I'll probably have the other part of that story. But, but I think it's, I, I, can, I definitely can see that it's been an important part of my experience to, because if you take, you got to remember, I was also, I started my first church at 23 years old and I was this young preacher and I thought I knew everything. And that like, that tempering was, a, I don't know what kind of person I would be if I hadn't had those experiences to way pull in those reins. So I know that everybody works through those things in different ways, but that's my own personal journey in regards to revelation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had an experience. Um, I used to be, I, I, it's, it's kind of interesting because some of my experience would mirror some of what you've experienced. I used to be very strongly, um, a strong emphasis on, on, on mystically hearing from God and so forth. And I've had the Lord talk to me um, very clearly, like, you know, word for word, somebody sitting in a room talking to me kind of thing. Usually not a conversation, usually just like something um, that I need to get. Um, you know, like, you're not getting this, listen to me. Um, usually just like a statement, but you, but you just know it's, it's a Lord. But um, years ago is probably, I'm going to say 2008, 2000, probably 2008 or two, it had been 2008. Um, so 12 years ago, I guess, a little while back. Um, I had an experience where I really felt the Lord had told me something. And to this day, um, I don't, it's hard for me to say that that, that, that actually wasn't of God because it didn't turn out the way that I thought it was going to turn out. But I, and I, I just had a really hard time and it's a complicated story. That's why I'm being kind of beaten around the bush because if I told a story, it'd probably take 20 minutes and I don't want to use that much of the time of the podcast. But um, I spent a lot of time struggling with that and saying, if I'm wrong about this, then I don't know how to hear God and everything, everything I've ever experienced is open to question. Mm-hmm. And even now I look back and I wonder why did the Lord work that way? Because the way I thought it was going to turn out didn't end up being the way it turned out, even though I thought I was hearing from God. Well, I think there's a really, there's a really interesting conundrum. Uh, I had some experiences in my life where, where I realized that it's one thing to hear God. It's another thing to understand God. Like I, in my own life and in, in the lives of other people I've heard, I've talked to and, and had experiences with 
there are certain people that hear God, they hear a definite message, but they don't understand what he meant. Like they misconstrue the message that comes from God. It's not even enough to hear from God. It's also enough to understand what God means when he says something. Mm. Uh, Drew's asking if I think that these things are normative, uh, like especially the second definite work. I, um, I, I, I do think that there are scripturally two definite works of, of sanctification, one in water baptism and one in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And I think that um, the language of the scriptures is, is used to identify those things on purpose. So nobody walks around wondering if they have been baptized in water. It, it is a definite experience that you know has happened. I, I don't ever, unless you were baptized as an infant or before your memories began, no, nobody walks around saying, well, I don't know if I've been baptized. I might have been this one time I got close to some water and maybe I was baptized, but I'm not really sure that nobody, nobody has that experience. You were either baptized or you weren't. And the fact that this same kind of terminology is used for the experience of baptism of the Holy Ghost. Also, along with the idea that in the original example with the apostles, they meet Jesus after the resurrection and, and he, he breathes on them and says, receive you the Holy Ghost. They become partakers of the spirit and then says, go and wait for the promise of the father, which is the Pentecostal blessing are two definite works. There are two definite things that happen to the church there. So I'm I have some confidence to say that these it, it is biblical to expect two definite works. And I think that baptism in the spirit, like baptism in water, is an entrance to, uh, to a new way of being. And I think that baptism of the Holy Ghost is entrance into spiritual gifts and spiritual access that we don't have before that experience. Although I do think that everyone who is baptized in water is a partaker of the spirit of God. So they Matthew, identify with Christ. I think most people listening to this would be like me in that they have not experienced that. And so what would you say to us? What should we do? <laughs> well, uh, uh, two things I would say in, in general terms. One is I would say that it's imperative that we do the things that we know before we anticipate mm. something that we don't know. Like right. this is the occupy till he comes. It's what waiting in a scriptural sense means. It means doing everything that you know that you're supposed to be doing. So if you sit down with yourself and God and have, a, have some moments of honesty and say, am I, where, am I doing what God expects me to do? Am I in the place where I'm at the center of his will? Am I obedient? Am I faithful? Am I being, I don't mean, am I, am I a superstar Christian? I'm a saving the world and baptizing a hundred people a week. I'm saying, am I faithful? Is there anything that I know in my, in my spirit that, that I'm convicted about that God wants me doing that I know I'm not doing? That Those things have to stay current. They have to stay caught up. That's the beginning place is just to be faithful in Christ. The second thing is that I can say from my experience, what, what bothered me was that when I was converted, I had a real sense of who Christ was. I really met him because that's, that's the nature of my conversion was to go, to go from a place where Jesus was a historical religious idea to the personhood of Christ, that he was someone real that I could know. And, and so that's my entrance into the kingdom was knowing Christ that in a real way, in spite of my church upbringing. 
And, and, and as I got to know Christ, I began to know the father. He said that of himself. He said, I'm come that they may know the father. And so I was having these experiences with the father and with Christ on the regular, like since the beginning of my experiences as a, as a genuine Christian, but I was flummoxed that the Holy ghost was kind of an alien entity that I had had experiences. I would have ecstatic experiences either in worship or in conviction of sin or in prayer where I would experience the spirit of God, but he wasn't, he wasn't somebody I could connect to like I could with the father and the son. And it finally began to bother me to the, to the, to the point that I wasn't content to continue that way. I felt cheated that there was a whole part of God that I didn't know or feel like I had access to that. I was, I was at the whim of from time to time, but I didn't connect with at the same level that I connected with the father and the son. And that became an increasing burden in my life over, uh, over a matter of six months or a year. And I, 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 I studied and I prayed and I sought out people who had had experiences that I thought were valid and important. I was seeking and I was opening myself because I, I came from a Baptist home. Okay, let me tell you a story. When, when we were first Christians, I'm a good Baptist. Even before I was converted, I was a good Baptist. And I came home from work. Now, Erica doesn't have any Baptist experience. We both just got saved. We're just ma newly married. And I come home from work and Erica says, you know, the funniest thing, when I was praying today, I felt like raising my hands. And I was like, don't you do that. That's what charismatics do. We do not do that. That's how <laughs> uncharismatic I was as a new convert. And I was opening my heart to these things. I was, I was, I was letting go of some of those prejudices and saying, I really want what God has for me. And I'm willing to accept even, even if it doesn't fit or conform with my ideas, because that was the nature of what my new Christianity was in general. And so, so I began shedding some of those prejudices and biases and really trying to look objectively at the scriptures and seeing people speaking in tongues and seeing people prophesy and seeing what, what Paul was saying about, about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and really desiring them. And this culminated in my life in a certain point when I told Erica, I said, babe, I gotta go. This is driving me nuts. Like I'm going crazy with this. I'm just gonna go and pray and fast and see if I can figure this out with God because we had been talking about it and we were both experiencing the same thing. And I was saying, I just feel like there's something that God intends for his people that I'm missing and I'm not content to live that way anymore. And it was that time alone in the wilderness, which was relatively short. Uh, I think what God is looking for is consecration in those moments. And I think why it happens so often in, in, the, in, in the biblical narrative, in the New Testament narrative, is because what it meant to walk into waters of baptism in Jerusalem a short time after the, after the crucifixion and say, baptize me in Jesus' name, the one that we just saw killed on a cross, like there's a consecration implicit in the entrance into baptism. Well, we don't all experience that. We don't all have the same price to pay. And God's merciful and he sees us there and he answers us there and he meets us there. But it doesn't do the same work of consecration, of sacrifice and of yielding and of blank checking God. And so I think I was able to find that place in my, in my young conversion with God a few years after I was converted. And I had an experience with God out there in the wilderness that felt, I mean, it was, it was, I'm being completely subjective here, but it was every bit of being immersed in the spirit of God. 
and I was, and my, in my own frailty, like I, I was all alone for those experiences and they were dynamic and they were powerful. I didn't speak in tongues at that point. I didn't, it wasn't like some external manifestation. It was a very subjective experience with God. But I, 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 I came out of that and the next day I was like, was that for real? Like, did I, and I felt the seeds of doubt in my own self about the experience that I just had. Like, did I gin that up? Was that phony? Am I being, am, am I, is this like self-suggestive? Like I had all those thoughts going through my, my head and it came upon me again. And I, and I came out of it that time and I said, okay, I, I, I'm fixed. I don't doubt it. I know that that was you. And I, and, and the fruit of that was that my heart, my ear was tuned to the Holy Spirit in a new way. So, you know, you have that feeling when you're like, when you feel like you see somebody and you're like, I wonder if I should talk to that person. Like, it was like that volume knob got turned way up. And when I would yield to that voice, when I yield to that, that, that internal witness, it was fruitful in ways that it hadn't been before. And it was clear in ways that it hadn't been before. And, and then eventually within a year, I had an experience uh, where I spoke in tongues, but it was a, almost a year later. Yeah, that's a really cool story. And I think you told Brennan that story when we were up in Boston. Um, right. I'm, I'm, not fully, I'm not fully convinced that it's that the, uh, of the second work, second definite work for everyone. Um, I, I understand how you get there from scripture in the, in the book of Acts, it definitely was not something they were confused about, like whether this happened or not. Right. Um, well, there's an even stronger, um, if you want to talk about uh, my, my, I kind of with my dad on the, on the second work um, idea, um, he's, he says, well, he, he would be more that there's multiple works, <laughs> not necessarily you know, right. too distinct, and then that's it. But that that there's the 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 need for filling. You see that with the apostles, right. where they prayed sure. and the house was shaken, and they were all filled. Absolutely. So there's the there's the ongoing experiences um, as far as that goes. But if you look in the book of Hebrews, um, he's writing to um, he's writing Hebrew church, and he says about entering into rest. He says there remains a rest of the people of God. Those that have entered into this rest have ceased from their works, as God did from His. Now, it's, it's obvious from reading the context that he's talking to a group of Christians, but yet he says to them, there's something more. There's something on top of that to be entered into, and the, the, the avenue to that, he, sa he says the reason that the, the Israelites couldn't enter into it is, is because of unbelief. They didn't believe God was able to do um, what he said he was going to do, and so because mm -hmm. of that, they didn't enter in, but that, there's a picture of what of what that entering into rest is. And it can't be, if you if you just contextually, it can't be talking about, um, about dying and going to heaven. Right. Uh, it's something that happens in this life and it's something that happens to people who are already following Jesus. And right. so if you wanna call that a second work, then, um, then that's what it is. I mean, that, that's where I see the evidence for that being taught as something, as that there's something more for believers. I think the, the the language of baptism is what I what I pin a lot of my ideology around this on and and baptism even if you go back to the oldest the oldest rabbinic versions of it 
baptism means entrance into something new. And I think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is, the, is the invitation to enter into to ministry and gifts and, and, and supernatural manifestations that we wouldn't have otherwise. And so the language of second definite work is, you know, that's, that's very couched within its own denominational headquarters. But the idea that there's this entrance that we come into ministry in the Holy Spirit, where we access things from God that we, we didn't have access to before the baptism is an idea that's, that I think is very scriptural. So however people are maintaining that, like I think it should be something. So I used to listen to a lot of Paris Reedhead and Reedhead used to have Tozer come and preach at his church in New York every year. And what, what, to, what he said that Tozer would say every time he would speak one night on, on the Baptist of the Holy Ghost. And every, every time he would come, he would say the same thing. He would say, there are three, there are three facts of everyone who has received the baptism of the Holy Ghost in the in the scriptures and outside of the scriptures. They knew that it happened, they knew when it happened, and it came upon them suddenly. Those are those are three definitions that you can draw from every encounter of someone being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I think those are important, those are good parameters to set around what we should couch in the terms of baptism of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And I don't think what was hard for me when I was struggling with it was like, I, I immediately jumped to this conclusion that if there was something that I was supposed to have, i.e. the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I didn't have it, that people who had, who had experienced that must somehow have some kind of perfection that I don't have. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's about perfection. It's not that if you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you quit having problems or quit struggling with sin or any of these things. It's just that you have access to tools and an arsenal. When you look at all, there's three times that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are cataloged in in the scriptures. There's Romans 12, there's 1 Corinthians, uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians uh, 12. And what's the other one? Oh, Ephesians. The, the 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 ministry gifts in in each of those cases and all three of those versions there's some language at the beginning at the introduction of that list that says that therefore every person uh he gives to every man severally such as he will in in i think the corinthian passage i don't know if it's corinthians or romans but in all three of those catalogs there's a description that these are for everyone. In the Ephesians case, like the Ephesians 16 who are baptized, is that, or is it six? The, the ones who had received John's baptism but didn't know the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the Ephesian epistle that uses the terminology that says, that calls the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the earnest of our inheritance. I don't know what that is in the modern translations. But earnest, one of the few places where that expression is still used in English is in real estate transaction. Mm-hmm. You give earnest money on a house. It means here's my down payment that I'm serious about this contract. That's one of the residual places where that same expression is used. And that's what the Holy, the Holy Spirit and its, and its gifts are supposed to mean to God's people is that when I get to the bottom, when I'm at the base, when I'm, at the, when I'm in the throes uh, 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 of all the difficulties that being alive entails, there's something that I possess that's God's earnest. It's his token. It's the sign that he, that I'm his and he's coming for me, that I have an inheritance in Christ and a world to come. 
And that's a really, really important, precious thing. It's something that God's people are supposed to hold on to, like as this memento that here's what I gave you so that you know that you're mine. And the value of that is incalculable. I've been at times in my life where nothing would suffice to, to hold me over and to comfort me, but to be able to connect with the spirit of God in that way. This is a happy dank podcast. <laughs> Glory. So, so um, I have a, Treve and I were actually just talking about this a couple of weeks ago, um, how the spirit, um, how the spirit comes. Because if you look and the, in the, um, the book of Acts, where we, you know, where we see the actual anecdotal part of the story, we see the, Philip goes up to Samaria and preaches and people believe and apparently are baptized, but then Philip doesn't, Philip doesn't appear to have the ability to, um, to give them the Holy spirit. Like the apostles have to come up from Jerusalem and they lay their hands on them and then they receive the Holy ghost and Simon, the sorcerer comes and offers money so what do you make of that? Is the Holy Spirit something that is still given by laying on of hands? But then, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch, how did he receive the baptism? Because it doesn't appear he had the opportunity to have hands laid on him by an apostle. Anthony, you've been pretty quiet. Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't feel like I'm an authority on this part of the conversation. So I'm, I'm learning and listening. Um, I, I'm I'm interested in how it segues into the uh, subject of, of of thinking and and how we how we recognize the type of thinking and the type of communication that comes out of a person when they have experienced something like this. You know, how do we know the genuine works of the spirit versus someone who goes around saying, "Well, not this won't make sense to you because you don't have the spirit." But it makes sense, you know. But I have the spirit, and so you need to listen to me. But I think that's um, I'd like I'd like to hear David's question answered, and this part of it wound up. I, I wasn't listening to the question. What was the question again? <laughs> the uh, different ways that they how does the Holy Spirit come? Oh, well, I think that Jesus gives us some some clues. He says that we should ask for it, um, and we see mm -hmm. it we see it descending in both pivotal moments for the gospel narrative uh, for the church you know when peter's in prison etc cetera, etc cetera. um but we also but i also think that this personal experience all of that ephesians passage is a, is a key indicator too that that it's supposed to have some personal meaning for us and that's how the spirit comes I do believe that there's a power in the laying on of hands i think that's a lost christian art and 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 it's something that's worth considering I, I don't have a lot of experience with that but uh, some minor places where i've experienced the power of laying on of hands through healing and some other things but it's pretty esoteric i don't i don't know how to quantify it um all this to say though that like the the importance of this conversation and and to your point anthony is that it's supposed to be exactly the opposite that if somebody has if somebody has been touched by the Holy Spirit, they have a new set of tools to communicate to things to people who haven't. And that's the whole point. 
that it, it makes the things of God sensible to people in ways that cause them to rush into the kingdom. It's not about, mm -hmm. it's not about being a gatekeeper. It's about ushering people in. It's not about holding people at arm's mm -hmm. distance and saying, I'm the special one that reveals the secrets. It's about come and see. And I think that's the, mm -hmm. that's a, that's an indicator of a false version of God's gifts is when it's used as a gatekeeper to make me powerful and you weak instead of a way to embolden the people of God to be mm -hmm. everything God wants them to be. Yeah. So, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I spent a lot of time in, in the charismatic world and there's a, a real, there's a, there's a concept of like, there, there's the charismatic celebrities, the Heidi Baker, Todd White, um, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Lou Engle, this list of charismatic celebrities who kind of have a conference circuit and, and, and some minor celebrities as well locally who you can have more access to for this specific thing of, you know, you, you have the worship time, you have the, the sermon by the, the, the speaker, and then often you'll go into what's called ministry time when the charismatic leader will be up front and everyone forms a big line to come have the leader lay hands on them and pray for them because somehow they have some sort of special anointing that the rest of the people don't have. And I think that's an abuse of this whole laying on of hands ideal. That seems very superstitious. Now, I, I do think that perhaps there is a, a rare occurrence where someone has some extremely special connection with God that maybe maybe they, they can impart that by laying their hands on it. I, I don't know that that might happen but it, it's the, the way it's commercialized in the charismatic world makes me want to vomit a lot of the time so that's just a caution for the whole laying on of hands things as well it, it has been abused and, and often is yeah yeah i, I think <clears throat> to what matthew said um I was going to ask him, but now he's gone. Um, the, the, like, I don't think people normally position themselves, obviously, as a gatekeeper who's like, I'm deciding who gets into God um, in that explicit way. It's more like, hey, everybody, here's the water. Um, I'll tell you how to get it. But there's a twist. There's a certain twist in the way it's, it's given. Like you said, Titus, these are the people that provide access. And they always claim that everybody is available. I mean, I, I can think of several people right now that are circulating in Anabaptist circles who are uh, either made up their own religion or are, or are peddling new apostolic reformation stuff. And they always present it as though as if this is something god wants all believers to be living in it doesn't take any special person to make it happen and yet somehow the only person who's getting it right is them and they can tell you how everyone else is wrong and and so so you you have you you have to look beyond the the actual text of what they're saying um and look at the mindset of a person are they setting themselves up as an authority and are they asking you to disregard rational or, or, um, you know, evidence-based observation-based arguments? Are they asking you just disregard everything, you know, because what I'm telling you is the truth and look at my, look at the power that's manifested in my life. And that's its own, 
that is its own um, that's its own justification. Um, that's that's and that's what I would um, if I'm not jumping to a different subject when we're not done with this one. Um, would you guys mind if I read First uh, Corinthians uh, one verses eighteen? As long as it's in King James. <laughs> That's right. It is. Be, uh... It's gonna be. It's gonna be in the ESV tonight. Oh, that's the um, reformed version. Yes. Yes. Um, you guys can bring another one if you like it better. But um, Paul says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written. I think these words. I think it's really interesting to look at this passage and look at the. He, he's flipping back and forth. He's contrasting a couple of concepts, and he uses a couple of different words for them. But there's clearly two things he's contrasting all the way through, and he begins with these two key words: the word of the cross is folly to the perishing, but it's power to us who are being saved. For it is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart." So those who, those who are wise, um, yeah, God's going, to, God's going to thwart people who think they're intelligent are going to find out they were wrong. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Um, so the, the key concepts that Paul is is playing with here is the idea of wisdom and power. This is what this is what people want. Um, this is what they're looking for in a message that that is going to grip them. And some people resonate with one more than with the other. And so it seems very clear here. He's saying the Greeks, you know, kind of had this elite philosophical way of looking at things. They wanted something that would fit into their their pre-existing philosophical systems and make sense and sound and, and you know. Something that was worthy of intelligent, um, learned people buying in. And it did not seem to be that way to the Greeks. The message of the cross doesn't seem to be that way. And the Jews, on the other hand, I think partly because of their subjugated status, um, they were looking for something. They were looking for signs, power. They were looking for a manifestation that there was a power at work that could get them the things that they had coming, that could you know, overthrow their enemies that could bring in the messianic age. They were looking for they were looking for power, and they didn't see that in the cross either. Um, and and I think this is a really interesting, a really interesting um, 
framework to discuss for uh, I would like to hear from the from the rest of you on on how that framework helps us to understand the gospel and the distortions of the gospel that we see around us are I'm inclined to think that those two main groups of people everyone falls roughly into those two broad categories people who are looking for signs and people who are looking for wisdom um, and and there's a certain type of person who cannot accept the gospel because it either doesn't either does not demonstrate the power they're looking for or doesn't demonstrate the wisdom they're looking for and this passage though is is used to denigrate all my life i've heard this passage used um very commonly in my culture to denigrate um intelligence and learning and education um and to kind of comfort people who didn't know much about the world and how it worked um and and even to preen ourselves spiritually as if we are more spiritual than people who have learned about the subject that's under discussion um so i i'm no i'm I'm not posing a clear I'm not posing a clear question here, but I'd like to hear some discussion of that because I think it's this scripture is really core to kind of the, the cloud of ideas we're discussing tonight. It, com- really- it, uh, uh, it comforts Mennonites because they are neither learned nor experienced miracles. So. <laughs> they reject wow, Titus. <laughs> Sorry, uh, guys. I had, to, I had to throw that one in there. Yeah, yeah. I really like uh, N.T. Wright's illustration of, of, of that verse, um, how, how um, the, the idea, the idea of, uh, to, the, to the Greeks, the whole thing is just crazy. It didn't, it didn't, it doesn't make sense. The gospel just doesn't make sense. It's foolishness. It's, it complete, was completely outside of their bubble and so forth. And then to the Jews, the concept that, that, you know, the, the, the crucified Messiah is just completely, like you were saying, Anthony, the um, <laughs> just completely the wrong thing. They wanted less crucifixion, not right. this is <laughs> this is where, you know, this is where it's coming from. Um, ha- have you all heard uh, N.T. Wright's little kind of illustration that he has of, of that? I always think of when we read those passages, um, how he was in the U.S. watching, I think it was a rugby i think um world rugby championships short version he's in he's in the u.s in um in his hotel room at six o'clock in the morning he's been watching that well he can't even watch a show because u.s television stations aren't carrying it so he's on a phone with his wife in england who's watching it that's going on it's going on i think england versus australia um and they're playing this game anyway right in the last inning or whatever they have in rugby i don't even i barely know what rugby is uh, you know, this guy wins, England wins the World Cup. So he says it's six o'clock in the morning. And for the first time in X amount of time, the, the English have, England's won World Cup. And he said, who can I tell about it? He says, I'm here. I'm in Atlanta. My wife's <laughs> over in England. You know, she's on the phone with me. I hang up and I'm so excited. He said, I wanted to walk out in the hall and, and, and say to a porter, grab a porter and say, have you heard that England won the World Cup, the World, whatever in rugby? He said the porter would have looked at me like I was crazy. He said to the Americans, it was foolishness. Like, what's rugby? 
He said, I walked around as a big conference, the international conference. And he said, uh, he said the first person he ran into that even knew the rugby championship was going on was an Australian. He said to the Americans, it was foolishness to the Australians. It was scandalous, <laughs> you know, and that, that I, I love that picture of the, the different responses to the gospel. Those that receive it are, um, you know, they're, they understand the victory that's there and the Jews, the Jews crucified Messiah is that's just another defeat piled on top of, of, of all the defeats and so forth. Um, and I, I think that ties in with, I think where you were going, Anthony, with the, um, with the rejection that we see in evangelicalism of the, the suffering Messiah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, we, we need, we, we need a winning team. We don't want to be on the losing team again. We don't want a cross. We want a, a crown, a flag, whatever. And this idea that Jesus said, take up your cross. Well, we're going to elect somebody who can actually win. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we, and if we have a leader who doesn't win in worldly terms, like Jesus, then if, if we're devoted to that kind of worldly power, we're just going to shelve him. We're going to put him over in a spiritual realm somewhere where he doesn't actually get involved in our act in the real world affairs that need fixed. And we're going to pick a Messiah that will. Um, and, and that's very clearly what's going on today. And I think that's, I, I, I don't know that we've discussed this on the podcast before. I can't always remember where I've, where I've discussed things, but um, I think this is a really, I really encourage people to watch for this particular mark of people who are seeking after a sign. Um, and, and they do definitely do exist in our Anabaptist circles and they're very marked Anabaptist and kingdom circles. They are, there, there are people who just they never saw a big flashy manifestation of the spirit that they didn't love. Um, right. You know, and, and, and so, and, and these same people, interestingly enough, it's, it's a connection that's a little weird at first until you start understanding what ties it together. They are also the same people who are the most diehard Donald Trump fans in, in these circles. And I, I firmly believe the reason for that is that, both in that that core to their faith that there's there's come um a lopsided uh pursuit of power as the justification um essentially a might makes right idea it's the idea that you can tell where god is working by where you see power being manifested and therefore you're willing to brush aside a lot of a lot of issues of truth and you know very shady behavior by people as long as they manifest power like within charismatic circles and so on well look what you look what happened at this at this crusade you know it has to have been a god if there was that much power manifested that same mindset looks out at the world and its politicians and says where is there somebody who's demonstrated the power to the you know raw power to destroy his enemies and hurt the people that we were scared of um 
And that same allegiance goes straight to that person. They are magnetized. A certain type of person is magnetized to power wherever it occurs. And the, the power of God is real, but there are other powers in the universe. Um, there are other powers active in our world. And some of them at certain times and places are more manifested than the power of God is. <clears throat> and so once you make power your defining um, you know, your, your single defining um, parameter for how you determine where God is working, then you are guaranteed to run after, you know, which, which, whichever Messiah has the most iron chariots and, and, and the, you know, the flashiest flag and the biggest muscles and the loudest military music and, and so on. So, so that's, I think that's very important to watch for, 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 you know, to develop discernment, to look and see if people are being driven by power uppermost. Um, you are seeing people who will reject the gospel because it's impossible, it's impossible to follow power above all and not to reject the gospel of Christ because there are many times and places where it does not look like the most powerful thing going on. Mm -hmm. I, I think all that's impulsive like it's all behind the closed door of the mind like people oh, yes. no one no one doing that would recognize that's what they're right. doing i think they're following the humble carpenter from nazareth but they have this impulse to power mm -hmm. what i've been what i've been really interested in lately is the idea and I, i've been looking for people articulating in fact somebody sent me a uh, Somebody sent me a message, uh, Ray Metzger sent me a message asking if somebody was articulating these ideas. And the idea is, is the idea of the reversal. Because what's interesting to me about that passage in particular is that, that there's a reversal implicit in, in what's saying. So the weakness of God is stronger than men and the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So, so if, you, if, you, if the culmination of what you're after is power, the way to find it in God is to look for weakness. Mm -hmm. If your impulse is to look for, for sophistication or Sophia or wisdom, mm -hmm. it's to look in foolishness. Like mm -hmm. that, the way that God's going to manifest those things to those, let's say those are two categories of people that are either after power or wisdom. The way that he's going to manifest those is in a reversal of that exact mm -hmm. concept. So if you recognize you're a, a person drawn to power, you need to look for the weakness of God. So for instance, like what I see a lot of times is people's impulse to power. Like when, when Ahmad Arbery is shot, he must be a thug. Like there's a, there's an impulse yeah, to yeah. agree with the side of power, the yeah. side that does the killing. Like mm -hmm. they must've had a good reason for it. He must've been a thief. He must've been this, or he must've been that. I, I had experiences with yeah. people about that exact thing. Yeah. Same thing with, with George Floyd. He must've been a criminal. He must've been that. There's an impulse to defend power. And what God is saying is that if you want my way and you're drawn that way, you have to look for weakness. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about this in the, con in the context of um, uh, these ideas about systemic racism. And I was, I've been thinking, we're talking, uh, some of us here are talking about how do we, I, I feel guilty not having something to say about this, these issues like we had a we had a, a a citywide meeting scheduled coming up, and it was it was on modesty issues. And I'm like, 
a brother spoke to me about it and I was thinking about it. I was like, I don't think that's the right thing for the church to be talking about when the nation is burning in race riots. Like maybe there's some other things that we should be focusing on. And so, so we're having some conversations as a brotherhood about these issues. And, 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 and I'm thinking about like, what could, because I know racial reconciliation is a huge, like there's a whole epistle wrote written about it in Romans, like this racial reconciliation between the Gentiles and the Jews, huge concept of the whole narrative focus of the Roman epistle. So how do we, how do we leverage these ideas that are intrinsic in the gospel about the issues that are embroiling the world today? And I'm thinking today, as I was driving around, I was thinking about, about the Gentile widows and acts that spurned the, 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 de- the deacon discussion. And, and what, what I'm, what I'm thinking about is like, when the Gentile widows come forward and say, we don't feel like we're being treated fairly, the impulse of the apostles is not to say, we need to do a study. I need scientific verification and empirical data to yeah. make sure that you're not getting less than the Jewish widows. And that's yeah. how my conversations about race are happening in Christian yeah. circles is, show me the empirical data where the black community is adversely affected in disproportionate ways. I wanna see the numbers. And I'm like, I'm at the place now where I'm like, that's not the question to me. Why do people in these communities feel that way? Let's yeah. address that. Like there are Christian responses for that feeling of disparity. It doesn't have to be, and I'm not saying that there's not verification for these things. I'm saying it's not the point. Yeah. So, so that impulse to power has to learn to retrain itself. The same thing is true with these, these like if I can think my way into God, mm-hmm. You have to get to the place where you say, I'm not going to think my way to God. I'm not going to rationalize my way to faith. I have to, be, I have to be willing to play the fool. I have to be willing to jump off in something that I can't see. I feel like intellectualism is the inability to take a step until I can, I can precisely, empirically quantify where my foot will land. And the, the, if you want to find God, if that's what your motive is, and that's your bent is that intellectualism you have to let go and you have to take mm-hmm. a step into the dark and these things are contrary to man it's the it's the hurdle of the disciple it's this it's the rock of offense and the stumbling stone <clears throat> it's yeah. what you have to get over to find him and it, all it remains counterintuitive right throughout your life uh yeah i i so the the question then is, you know, when we're looking at, you know, whether it's resolving an issue in the brotherhood or whether it's, you know, developing a gospel-centered view of um, racism or domestic violence or any other big issue in the world today, um, how do we how do we distinguish between saying, well, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, you know, just take a step in the dark. What's, what's the difference between that? And um, ju- I just go by my feelings. You know, I, I know I read the, I've read the Bible all my life and I just take whatever I see on the surface and I grab a, you know, a phrase or a word out of context here or there, or I open it up and you know, read the first thing my eye falls on and just kind of a reckless approach. The, the idea that I don't need to have intellectual competence in the subjects that we're trying to approach as a church, um, as the people of God. 
what what's you know how how do we balance intellectual competence with with being willing to not demand an intellectual answer to everything well well i would say that an answer to that that the 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 weakness of god is stronger than man and the foolishness of god is wiser than man so what should be happening if we're focusing on the weakness of god if we're looking towards the the those that don't have power if we're reversing that in in following in our discipleship if we're if we're looking for the foolishness of god like like speaking up about things that are not popular or whatever the manifestation the foolishness of god is taking it should be producing wisdom of god mm -hmm. it should be producing effects that right that are tangibly affecting the world it should have an impact so if i'm embracing weakness it should be making things strong if i'm embracing god's weakness it should be making things strong if i'm embracing god's foolishness it should be making things wise it should be having fruit and effect in the world just like our our premises about non-resistance and non-violence is it's 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 not an abdication it's not a running from the fight it's it's a the most non-resistant people are the quickest to engage in conflict not the last to engage in conflict that kind of paradigm switch where it has the opposite effect from the opposite rationale like if i'm a fighter in my old life i run to a fight and i i want to deal with things in my own strength and my own flesh but when i when i embrace as a disciple jesus's teaching on nonviolence, it should still compel me to get involved but now i find good results instead of bad results from the flesh mm -hmm. So if I'm if I'm embracing if I'm embracing this like ability to check my mind and say it's not all about intellectualism the fruit of that in Christ ought to be that I'm getting wiser that my life is becoming stable so mm -hmm. here's a for instance you, there's a there's a common uh, I'm going to stereotype that the common intellectual is kind of a depressive person like he's worried about global warming he's worried about atheism and doubts of faith he's worried about all kinds of things because if you're intuitive if you're thinking about the world there's a lot of problems that you should be thinking about because the mm -hmm. world is a mess and so the, it, it tends that thoughtful people have a lot on their minds mm -hmm. when i embrace the foolishness of god when i'm willing to say i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna step in the dark it ought to create stability it ought to create peace it ought to create the things that i wasn't able to produce with the heights of my intellectual accolades that's how that's okay we're still in the subjective i know but there ought to be some fruit bearing in these mm -hmm. things that are that are leading us to god and stability and wholeness and and those things that logos should be producing right right and and those and those things are and those results are not going to be all subjective so i mean right. the 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 fact that the fact that for instance um you know plain churches are white is right. not a subjective right um uh, uh fact like that that's right. a, that's objective fact you can you can you can count right um the diversity um and so if if our and this this was an example that came to mind is since this is sub subject is on everyone's mind right now if in fact our framework for thinking about racism in the church is correct if we're if we're truly are rejecting the wisdom of the world, which many people, you know, who are tuning out the current Christ for justice say they are doing, 
Um, if we truly are rejecting the wisdom of the world and we truly are embracing what the gospel says about race relations, then what we should see is that there are ra race relations within our churches are more diverse and healthier right. than anywhere else in the world. And right. if you are saying, well, this isn't what the gospel teaches, I reject all these, this worldly agitation, and there is zero sign that you have solved the problem of, of uh, ethnic barriers between people, or that even that you even recognize that the problem exists, um, then no one should listen to you. Like that's, that's right. um, so there's, and there's many, many other examples of that. And this um, is getting off uh, on a bit of a rabbit trail, but it just popped in my mind that I think one of the reasons why Christians in this nation are, are rejecting uh, a lot of the calls for justice is because we've bought into, well, not we, they have bought into the narrative that America is just getting worse and worse and ungodlier and ungodlier. So the notion that there would actually be progression in an issue is foreign to them. So mm -hmm. I, I would agree that in many ways, America is getting worse, but in many ways, it's getting a lot better. And right. race is one of those things. And the church has not been leading the charge. Now, the church was leading the charge uh, in, in a lot of cases in some of the earlier stages, um, but now it is not, you know? And so this idea that, that the secular left might actually be right in one issue, at least one issue, you know, just we, we don't have any categories for that, you know? And I, I think that's, we need to be humble. Like, I, it was so interesting to me. I, I saw a conservative evangelical uh, figure on social media say that he wants to, or he, he put out a call for all, anyone who like him cannot get behind the Black Lives Matter movement because of fundamental disagreements there to, to start up an evangelical version of it. And I looked at that and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. In a way, I'm, I'm excited about this. This is great. But why did it have to take this long to get to this point? And so I commented, I was like, right. you know, this is great, more power to you. But, but it's interesting that the, the same BLM movement that you don't want to align with is the movement that finally got your attention. Well, that comment didn't go over well with him. <laughs> but right. but I, I think there just is a lack of humility where we cannot admit that we have been dragging our feet in an issue and and just repent about that and and yeah try to try to start leading the charge rather than being dragged along this is yeah um kind We're, of going back, <laughs> um it's something and maybe it's maybe it's just a paradox um i i don't intend it as a gotcha question but you know, we talk about the gospel being an upside down kingdom, you know, so that the strong, the weak are favored, not the strong and the, all, all of these different types of things. And yet, you know, in the conversation just a little bit ago, um, you said that, that the, um, we can tell when the gospel of Jesus is working because it's strengthening the hands of the weak. If what you're doing is actually bringing about the gospel, you're, you're, it's bringing strength where there was weakness. It's bringing um, all these, you know, these, these are benefits. But 
that doesn't make sense if weakness is actually the good thing and strength isn't. Do, yeah. do, do you get what I'm saying? Or right, but I think that I think that the the prophetic call uh, back to Isaiah is is okay so like the forerunner remember remember what it says about john he's going to bring the mountains low and he's going to fill in the valleys like the, okay. the way is is equality like to to find center is what humanity should be doing in christ like the so okay that, so, that makes sense yeah filling in those places that's the place where jesus walks where the mountains been brought low and the valley's been brought up that's the way of the king so so it's it's more it's more an issue that um it's not it, it, it's not that um the the point isn't that nobody is strong but the point is that everybody should be equally strong right that's the goal that's the goal of humanity that we should all be logos that we should all be full and flourishing and fully human okay that that makes because that's always something i've struggled with with this because it doesn't make sense because like but then if we win and we actually bring about the point of what the gospel is supposed to be. Well, now we've just created the problem we were trying to get out of because we've just got done building people up. Now those people are built up, which isn't what's supposed to happen because we're supposed to be brought down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The well, the, I think a way of a way of looking at it um, is that God's power is different from essentially evil power power misused and twisted and distorted it's it's different in kind than than the power of god and so uh, for for every good thing that god wants to bestow on humanity that god wanted us to live in originally as humans here on earth um there's a counterfeit that we've been sold instead as you know as we were enslaved to sin and so mm -hmm. i th i think what paul is saying here one way of putting it would be that well, well, to back up a little bit to what you said, um, David, it's true that in world affairs, you see this with revolution after revolution. Um, you see it in the United States right now. There were, the colonies were, you know, they were the underdogs. They were, they, they threw off this world power to become an independent nation. And it was, you know, a, a real come from behind victory, a bunch of militias and, and, you know, relatively poorly organized resistance with God's help to fight a guerrilla war help. essentially um yeah like all the other ones I guess um <laughs> that have done the same thing but they but but today today those same people are the empire mm -hmm. um and and the rest of the world sees the United States exactly the same way as the colonists saw Britain um in 1770 you know in the 1770s so so that's what happens with worldly revolutions eventually you re you you, you regenerate the same evils that you threw off because you you're fundamentally playing by the same set of rules that always produces the same outcomes and what paul is saying i think one of the things he's saying one of the things that's embedded in this in the truths he's conveying here is that there is there the only path to a power that works differently from this is you you have to the weakness is the trailhead to that power as long as you're pursuing power you just keep getting that same old power again and again that that same you become the abuser if you do manage to get on top 
you become the oppressor instead of the oppressed. If you want to become a different kind of wielder of power that, that produces blessing and fullness and fruitfulness and flourishing forever, um, you, have to, you have to get there by a different path. And that path is weakness and, and it's completely counterintuitive. It feels like going the wrong direction in the same way with wisdom. If you want to get mm -hmm. a wisdom that does not just become this ingrown elite set of philosophies that are used to abuse the people that don't have it, um, mm -hmm. like you also see in the sciences today um, and in philosophy, um, if you don't want wisdom to morph into this ugly counterfeit, you've got to go look for the truth in foolish places. That foolishness is the trailhead to the wisdom of God. Uh, weakness is the trailhead to the, to the uh, strength of God. And, and, and so it's, it's a difference between counterfeit strength and genuine strength. Um, and as long as you don't understand that it's going to be counterintuitive, um, you continue to find the wrong, you know, arrive at the wrong destination. So the gospel, the gospel is basically, um, the gospel is the escape hatch or the, or the exit off this merry-go-round of mm. the oppressed become the oppressors who then are overthrown by their oppressed who become the oppressors. And that's been going on now for the last X number of basically as long as people have been, uh, have been organizing into societies that's been going on. And that's, and the world looks at it as this, well, this is kind of how it works. We can reform, but then that reform is going to become corrupted. And, and that's what we're seeing right now. Like you said, with the U S you know, um, they overthrew, you know, and, and the cycle continues. We see it happen in churches where um, that's one of the things that peeves me to no end. Um, there's been some discussion in the group with God and Uncle Dale is those churches um, treated, you know, Dale and, and, and his family really, really badly. And it was a, some serious abuse of power. Well, they turned around those same churches and in some cases, the same people turned around and within two decades, they were doing the exact same thing. And it's like, you didn't really have a problem with the fact of what the people were doing you just didn't like the fact it was happening to you right as soon as you have the opportunity to do it you're doing it to the next guy and then he's gonna his job is to crawl on top so he can do it to you and this cycle continues mm -hmm. and the gospel and its idea of what power is is the escape hatch that says you don't have to live this way mm -hmm. it's not about trying to get to the top of the pile only to get pulled off by somebody else there's there's a different way is that yeah, you've just described Girardian mimetic desire on accident. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's what I'm going to call this podcast, Girardian medical desire. Is that what you just said? That is mimetic. Okay, text it to me so I can spell it correctly. <laughs> what, that's going to be Titus's new podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this, this so so that that get off the get off the merry-go-round idea is what's unique about christ it's what's unique about the christ story and yeah and it, it applies in everything he's saying and doing like that that same principle is playing out in 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 his teaching on nonviolence. in essence what jesus is saying in the sermon on the mount is Look, you guys have been doing this eye for an eye thing for millennia. Like this is this is the human path. Let me let me get you off the roller coaster because 
when you when you're hurt and you hurt the person that hurt you, all you're doing is making more hurt. It's just hurt upon hurt upon hurt upon hurt upon hurt forever. So that's so that's what the like we've had all these discussion about the atonement, and that's what the atonement is is because somebody it, with this cycle of violence, somebody has to get hurt without hurting back. And well, Jesus says, "I'm going to be that person. I'm going to be the person you hurt." that doesn't hurt back so this whole crazy thing can stop in the in the forebear sense that's absolutely true yeah so okay so when so when so when he teaches when he teaches to love your enemies there's all kinds of misconstruals of that it's it's a it's another matter of hearing god but not understanding him like i i feel like the i'm i'm super grateful that there are people that still take those words seriously even if even if it's not being applied in ways that i think are are the most noble versions so bless god for that i'm i'm glad that somebody's taking him at face value but it's there's more than face value there what what's more than face value is that these are these are actually tools that are designed to undo how much evil there is in the world like mm -hmm. The ability to convert these things, to take suffering and violence and turn it into love is removing, it's like a filter, it's removing evil out of the world. That's the whole Jesus ministry and the whole Christian ministry is to remove this stuff and turn it, turn out something. It's like photosynthesis. You pour violence and hate and oppression on the church and will turn out grace and love and power and undo those systems. Mm -hmm. that's that's how this is supposed to work it's supposed to be a, a conversion of these things but there all these things are this reversal concept is it it, it touches everything that's christian mm -hmm. like like i was thinking about uh paul's paul's discourse on his own ministry he's talking about the apostles and he says all the things all we're like trash we're we're beaten we're abused we're torn apart we're dismissed we're considered fools we're ugly, we're gross, we stink, the whole thing, so that you can live like kings. And it's an assertion of this reversal, the very, the, the, the pinnacle of the, of the Christian ministry is the apostle. He's the man, right? He's the guy. He's the one that knows the stuff. He's the one that has the power to make things happen. In the apostolic era, he even has miraculous power to heal people and all this stuff. Like he's the superhero of the comic book of Christianity and he's underneath everything and he's mm -hmm. displaying this and he's trying to get us. Jesus is trying to get us. The apostles are trying to get us. Everything is on its head. Everything is upside down. You got to run this stuff backwards. If you're engaging with any situation, the one underneath the power is the one you should be looking at. If you're the one that's weak, the one that's not dominant, the one, and that doesn't, it doesn't mean that poor people don't have sins or problems or any of those mm -hmm. things. It means that the systems of the world are designed to run one direction and the kingdom of God is designed to run the opposite direction. And at the opposite flow of the systems of the world, this is what it means to be worldly. It, it's not about the color of car you drive or the color of shoes you wear or the music you listen to. If you're running this way in the systems of the world, you're worldly. If you're embracing the systems of greed and oppression and dominance and, and power, uh -huh. you're worldly. Uh -huh. If you're running the opposite, if you have an eye to the poor, if you care about the needy, if you want to see things differently and you're acting that way, that's the opposite of worldly. And this inversion is the critical Christian issue. 
it's happening and oh, there's some, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. I think you guys all know that stuff. It's just nice to articulate it and put it into yeah. words. Yeah. Good stuff. And, and then, we're at then, two hours. Seriously? Wow. So the whole inversion thing is so <laughs> difficult for me to, I mean, it makes sense. Um, and maybe it's just because I see so many corruptions of that. But um, I'm just going to give an example. We're not name any names, but, um, you know, there's, uh, there's some criticism from various people the, of, of, of the idea of, well, Matthew, I mean, you live in a multi-million dollar house. You can <laughs> read online. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but I hear this thing, for instance, um, you know, that, that we ought to be, uh, you know, we shouldn't, it kind of, kind of this idea, especially the really extreme ascetics, you know, you don't have anything nice. You don't, you know, if you, you inherited some, um, uh, some China cabinet from grandpa, well, the thing to do is to sell that and give that money away because it's wrong to have any of these things. And so obviously those are the extreme cases, but the the thing, and, and this goes back a little bit to the to that leveling out you were talking about, because ideally, if everybody was Christian, um, there would be no lack. There would be, well, there would be abundance for everybody. It wouldn't right. be um, abundance here and lack there, but it would bring everybody up um, right. into abundance, assuming everybody was Christian. But, but, but my question is, um, if it's wrong for me to have it, is it, how is it okay for me to sell it? Because now somebody else has it. Right. So it can't be implicitly wrong. And this is, this is that uh, we could go veering off the exit ramp into a finances discussion and we're almost, you know, we're too far in a conversation to do that. But that, but the thing, the thing that I have such a hard time wrapping my mind around is because the result, the alleged, alleged result, I would say alleged, but the, the basic result that we're seeking is a world where everybody is, Everybody, where people are healthy, you know, where we stamped out sickness, where people have healthy water, where children have food to eat, and, and all these different things, but those are the things that we're supposed to be turning away from and fighting against, or not, or is it more like, a, like there's a willingness, the world, the, 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 the pyramid the world follows is, let's figure out how to get all that stuff for myself, and the, the Jesus pyramid is, let's figure out how to help other people to, to get what they need. Is that more the, the philosophy? Let's right. reverse, reverse the economic flow. Wealth is great as, as long as, if everyone would have wealth, wealth would be awesome. But I, I think the reason why hoarding wealth is a problem is because we live in a world where not everyone has wealth. Right. Therefore, if I hoard wealth, that is wealth that could otherwise have been used to bring, at least give someone his basic needs, right? Mm -hmm. So I think Shane Claiborne says, and he's probably quoting someone else when he says that there's enough for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed. And it just happens to be because of our broken world, there's people who don't have their basic needs met. And that's the problem with hoarding wealth. It's not, I think in the new creation, we'll, we'll have wealth or whatever the term will be for it in that case. It's, it's great. That's like the world is becoming wealthier and, and, and 
uh, you know, poverty is, is, is being eliminated mm. slowly throughout the world. And that's wonderful. That's, that's the point. But, but in order see, for, go ahead. This is what's so frustrating to me about it and why, like, I'm probably have some Western mindset that needs shattered or something. I don't know. Um, and I'm probably. really not trying to be that guy here. I'm, I'm just having a hard time rap. Okay. So Jesus said, blessed are the poor. So I'm a rich guy and I go and sell everything and I give it to a poor guy. And now he's not poor anymore. He starts a business. He's got a house. He's got this. Now he's not poor anymore. Why just took the guy's blessing? Yeah. I, I don't think that's the point. I, I think I, I'm not, like I said, I'm not trying to be stupid, right. but I, I, it doesn't make yeah, sense. It's, I'm missing something. It's a sensible question, but the, but, but I think what we're getting at is that when you look at like Acts two and Acts four, for instance, the, 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 the response that people are having in the Jerusalem church to the Holy Spirit is not a Gnostic response. It's not the, it's not the, the, the displacement of the physical world. It's not that things are bad, like the physical world is bad and the new spiritual world is good. That's a very Gnostic idea. What it, what's happening in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 is that people are reorienting themselves to possession. It, it's not about the things, it's about the people, and it's about what those things mean to people. So Jesus says, all these things the Gentiles seek after. They seek after authority, they seek after possession. It's what the life is about. Life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. The, the 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 definition when you when you look at when you look at the world structures and you draw a bottom line under a lat, uh, under a life when you assess what is their value it's about net worth it's about power and influence it's about how many things did you have how much power did you can hold on to and how much influence did you exert those are the definitions of the gentile life and all of that's flipped on its head. Now in the Christian evaluation, it's how much did you give? How much did you raise? How much did you bless? How much out went? How much outgo was there out of your life, not ingo? Like how, how many things did you bring into your life is the, is the Gentile version. How much came out of you to the world around you is the Christian version. They're exactly opposites. So when you look at when Paul, when Jesus or Paul or the church in Jerusalem focuses on poverty, it's not so much about taking a person out of God's favorite category and putting them into their, his non-favorite category. It's about reorienting the systems of the world. And it's about God's kingdom saying now our priority structure is different. Whereas the Gentiles are used to looking at whoever has and possesses and contains, now the church is going to look at the opposite end of the pyramid. We're going to look at who's at the bottom, and we're going to continue to bring the bottom up. And the mm -hmm. fact that in, in the post-Christian world for the last 2,000 years, the bottom of the world has come up higher and higher, mm -hmm. to, especially mm -hmm. in our lifetimes. Like in my 40 years, the amount of people who lives on $2 a day has changed dramatically percentage-wise yes. in the world. That's huge. That's like the value of that is tremendous. So as we keep bringing poverty up, bringing more and more people out of the bottom tier of Gentile world, it's because the church has focused her efforts and energies there. And it's, it's raising the whole tide of the world. The, the influence of Jesus on earth 
is raiding, mm -hmm. raising the whole tide of humanity. It's the it's the gospel, the, the leavening of the thing that the world itself has become leavened. And right. it's amazing because we've seen that leavening happen, like you said, in our lifetimes. Yeah, it's um, accelerating. It, yeah, it's it's crazy. Like the idea, even the concept of collateral damage 90 right. years ago, what's collateral damage? Right. Uh, so yeah, that that makes a lot that makes a lot of sense. Um, and even and even if you li listen to some voices that are not uh, that you know wouldn't be practicing Christians, some of these concepts are things that even secular people are espousing and saying this right. is what life is. Um, and that's part of that that's part of that leavening process of people waking up to the truth of the gospel that maybe not, don't even understand that Jesus is Lord, but they still understand the truth of what He said. Right. Yeah, people are suggesting this really, really crazy idea that maybe we should use money for for programs that prevent crime on the front end instead of just locking people up on the back end. Like, who would have come up with that? Like, maybe we should use our money for nonviolent ways of solving problems rather than violent ones. It's like, right. It's Unfortunately, in front of us. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of the Jesus people are the ones that think that's a bad plan. Well, the, re the reason, and I think it's very important to understand the reason for that is because this is the core, like changing the flavor of the world, bringing the world back into the order that God designed for humanity to live in, is at the core of the whole point of the gospel. Like it's not some esoteric spiritual experience that everybody's supposed to have or, you know, Getting out, of hell at the, getting out of hell and going to heaven at the end of your life. It's about restoring the world to its yeah. created order. And, and, the, and the adversary always aims his primary effort. If he can distort, if he can steer the church away from that focus, he, he, has, he has essentially neutered the entire, you know, the gospel of, of its entire point. And so that's why you see that fraudulent Christianity is marked by a rejection of the core mission of the church and the mm -hmm. core point of the gospel. So mm -hmm. every, everywhere you see that, 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 that is rejected. You're essentially seeing a Christianity that's just had the heart ripped out of it. And now all you have is the trappings. Like it's a, it's, it, there's, there's clothes and, and rotten leathery skin on there. And you can tell that it was a body once, but, but it's, you know, it's a zombie. There's nothing there. It's not accomplishing anything in the world. So, so that's how you know the church today, by the way, when you're sorting through, when you're sorting through the, the, uh, you know, when we're trying to figure out who is truly our kindred spirits in Jesus, um, you don't Those look for do people, the will of the father. You don't, yeah. You don't look for people who are dressed like I am or who, you know, comb their hair like I do or speak the language I do or live in the kind of commune I live in. Um, you look for people who are focused on those, on that set of priorities, on restoring the world to its proper created order. And Setting the world right. Yeah. Which, and, which and, begs and, the and, question are, is, is that, that's what the accusation against that narrative is always that, especially from our circles, is that's political. You're getting involved right. in something that's not and in and and the roots of the christian church in its social aspects mm -hmm. the the impact that the church is supposed to have in the world is is dismissed as actually a negative 
that we right. shouldn't have anything to say about these issues, that that's getting involved in politics is the, is the, is the mantra that I keep hearing from people. Oh, yeah, right. And that's a master stroke. Like that is a talking, that is literally a talking point from hell um, right. that, that, that has been created by the adversary to, to block Jesus' call out of people's minds, to just separate them from the call of God. And, and, and I think we need to do a whole, whole podcast on that someday on, on the subject yeah, of politics. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little unclear how you feel about that, Anthony. Could you clarify <laughs> it a little bit more? Maybe come on a bit stronger. <laughs> yeah, I think it's time for it to be said. And um, I think I a, a, a big problem here is also our eschatology. And I think I just woke up my baby. Um, no, Titus. <laughs> um, it, yes, I agree. We're just expecting the world to get worse and worse and worse. And and whenever we see horrible things happening, great, this might be the tribulation, which means Jesus is coming to burn it all up. You know, that is a horrible vision. There, Jesus well, it's, is it's essentially the. Let, let's just point out that is essentially the vision of ISIS. Um, <laughs> it is. Yep. Uh, I mean, that's exactly the same mindset about the world that the same mm -hmm. celebrating the same apocalyptic. Things. Yep. They want to they want to start a war with between Islam and Christianity because that'll usher in the end of the world. And they have many they have many people on the other side that uh, can't wait to join them in the middle. Right. Um, almost but, but, like there's it's almost like they're working for the same guy. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. Well, it? Things are getting really strong here. Uh, yes. Um, we, but but David, anyone who disagrees with us. <laughs> um, um, David, I, I wanted to go back just a little bit briefly to what you were saying about this question of if, if being poor is blessed, how can you, how are you helping by helping the poor? Um, if you look at what Jesus actually said in some of those key passages, I have, I have, uh, I have the Luke six um, passage in front of me right now, but you, you, he says why it's blessed, why you're blessed if you're poor, why you're blessed if you're hungry and so on. And in each case, it's because that's going to be remedied. When the world changes to be the way it's supposed to be, you're going to be restored. All of this is going to be turned into some kind of redemption for you. Mm -hmm. um, so it is the restoration process that's, kind of key to the blessing there blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of god in other words you're going you are going to be royalty blessed are you who are hungry now for you will be satisfied blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh and and there's a kind of satisfaction that only comes after having been hungry there's a kind mm -hmm. of laughter there's a kind of mirth that you cannot experience unless you've wept there's a kind of a kind of um yeah, a kind of reward in heaven that can only be experienced by people who have been the outcasts. And so once again, it, it's it, this, he's, he's blessing these people because they are on the path to, they are on the path to the, the dream of humanity. They are on the path to, to the ultimate fulfillment that a human being can experience. Those who are high in the world, those who are, are rich, those who are already experiencing worldly mirth are are going to have to experience a terrible downfall before they you know to even get to the point where they can begin to return lazarus and the rich man right so so then 
by me feeding the hungry or helping the poor, I'm not taking away their blessing. I'm bringing the fulfillment of that blessing that he said. Exactly. Exactly. That as the kingdom is being lived out, they're mm-hmm. receiving the fulfillment of that blessing, that this is mm-hmm. what the new kingdom is, is it's a kingdom that makes the weeping laugh. It's a kingdom that feeds the hungry. It's a kingdom that does all those things. And at and the same it should, it should be reverberating. Like the 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 parable of the of the unforgiving servant is is supposed to be a lesson. Like in other words, we should not be doing that. So when we see somebody forgiven, when we see somebody given a new lease on on opportunity, like to come out of poverty, they should be turning around and helping someone else, not not taking that, heaping that under themselves, and and then turning back into the system of the world. Like okay, I, 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 I got out of poverty. Now I'm going to impoverish people so I can stay on top. That's the opposite yeah. of the kingdom of God. It should right. be ennobling and reverberating. Right. Maybe you've heard a joke about uh, um, two bums walking down a street and they saw a sign, um, turn your life around two bucks. So the guy goes in, looks at the flyer, and they have this new technology or whatever that, um, that they can, you put them in the machine and they zap you and, it changes your brain structure and, and you're just, you know, you're, you're set for success. So they only had $1 between it was only each of them only had a dollar, you know? So first guy said, well, give me your dollar. I'll go in and I'll, um, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get taken care of. And then, um, you know, see how it goes. I'll be successful and I'll be able to help you out. So, all right. So they agreed to do it. First guy goes in. The other fellow's waiting outside for about 20 minutes, and a guy comes out. He's wearing a three-piece suit. He's all cleaned up. He's walking. He's got shine shoes. He's walking like he's a, you know, the king of the world. And the fellow pulls on his sleeve. He said, "Hey, how about those two dollars so I can go in and do the same thing?" The fellow says, "Get a job, you dirty bum." And that, you know, is pretty much the. Uh, the shift, <laughs> not only of the the outside, but the the mental shift too. A lot of times, is the people that move. The people that change that mindset can very often, like you said, carry on and 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 not help out. Yeah. And Somebody in the that's... comments is asking, "I'm confused. Is God going to restore this current world or create a new heaven and earth?" Boy, there's a fun exit ramp. <laughs> yes. The answer to that is yes. Well. Yes. Yes. So, but, but I, I said that and then I realized that I was saying yes to destroy this world. So Tim Mackey talks about this, the Bible project. Uh, the question was restore this world or create a new restore heaven. Oh, that's, yes. That, that's, yeah. I thought they said destroy. Yeah. Yeah. Tim Mackey talks about this, the Bible project guy. He, he talks about the passage in, I think, first Peter, where it says that the elements will melt with fervent heat and all of that. And I think that that's probably the only passage that describes this world being burnt up. And there's actually a textual variant there, if I'm not mistaken. And um, the word relief. Has, <laughs> we can squirm out of that one. <laughs> the the word translated elements doesn't mean you know necessarily like the periodic table of elements as in like the the actual physical stuff of the universe being burnt up you know the periodic table hadn't been invented yet and yeah and and the fire is more of of a purifying fire it's an image of you Mm -hmm. know the the elements 
that everything that stands against God being mm-hmm. purified. Now that that's one interpretation of that passage. I think it can also, if you want to use that to say that everything's going to be burnt up, I, I don't think you have to stretch it too far. But if you look at the rest of the scriptures with the concept of of restoration and, and new creation and metamorphosis, mm-hmm. I think that it, it squares better with the rest of the scripture to say that it's it's a purification, um, yeah. and not just a, a burning up, so to speak. Mm-hmm. This would be a great conversation to pursue farther, but I'm going to have to get off and uh, go uh, put my children to bed. So we all do. We're going to bore people if we keep going. <laughs> well, something uh, with that verse you mentioned, Titus. The um, I've heard that the that the verse that it talks about the elements is actually the same that's used in another place where it talks about the 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 rudimentary the rudiments of the world, the elemental mm-hmm. spirits of the world, and it's like that picture of those spiritual powers that you know matthew you were talking earlier the 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 way the world thinks the world being worldly that those that that superstructure is going to be removed Mm -hmm. um and that that doesn't require the destruction of the physical elements of the earth um in fact the in corinthians it says um if any man's in christ he's a new creature all things are passed away behold all things are become new well god didn't destroy me when he made me a new creature you know and so I don't think it's necessary to destroy the earth to, to bring about a new earth either. And this, boys and girls, is why you should not have tattoos. Oh. <laughs> All there. roads lead to tattoos. Yeah, Matthew knows done. whereof he speaks. Good night. <laughs> right. Hey, we'll talk to you guys next week. Yeah. All right. Love you guys. Thanks for everything. Yeah.